welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. preacher this morning is, uh, has been our guest over the course of the weekend, a man named Mike Kanjan. He's been with us with his wife, Catherine. And Mike, why don't you come on up so everybody can uh, meet you. Um, Mike is the, uh, the pastor of Chapelgate Presbyterian Church uh, in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, prior to that, he has uh, served in Old Cutler Presbyterian in Miami and then Wildwood Presbyterian in Tallahassee. Uh, as a gator, I can say that's a city that needs the gospel so very, very badly. So thank you. <laughs> and uh, no comment. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, Mike, it's been, uh, it's been a real joy having you with us. Mike is the author of a book last year uh, called A Sometimes Stumbling Life that we have available for purchase uh, as well. It's also widely available, but it's a great, great read that will encourage your soul. And so, um, Mike, let me pray for you, and, um, and then uh, we'll read the scriptures and, uh, and hear God's word. Lord, I thank you so much for Mike and for Catherine, for their ministry here. I thank you for their willingness to be apart from their church family, uh, to be with us this weekend. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the ways that you've encouraged us uh, through his words and through their presence. Lord, I do pray that as we come to your word, that you would speak uh, truth and life and joy and grace uh, to our hearts. Uh, Lord, we are so often... Uh, so starved for good news in this world. And so, Lord, we come uh, to listen to you, our Lord and our King. And so, Lord, uh, speak to us. We, your servants, are listening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word? Our reading today is 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I, am, I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. 
But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he surely would come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servant came near to him and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh is restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Uh, pray with me for a moment. Father, thank you for uh, the, the gift of peace that you have brought through Jesus. And now speak the gospel into our hearts that we may know you. Uh, speak to us in spite of the insecurities, fears, sins, and failings of the one who delivers the message. Jesus, may we hear your voice because you're the one we need. And we pray these things in your name, amen. Hey, thanks for having us. What a blessing. What a, what a fun time last night, this weekend. What a, an awesome church that God has, has brought up in this place. What great leadership, Dave and Willie and the rest of you are providing. Just praise God for Christ Church in town. Uh, it, it's enviable to see uh, how much joy fills this place and the vision of this church. And uh, we're just thankful to, to have shared this weekend with you. Uh, I want to share one of my all-time favorite stories with you and have a little fun with you. Uh, John Ortberg tells it in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted. He talks about how he and his wife finally had come to a place where they wanted decent furniture in the house. So they traded their Volkswagen uh, van in and uh, went to this really nice furniture store uh, with their little children and uh, three little kids from baby on up a little bit and said, we'd like to get a really nice sofa. And uh, they walked around and they found this mauve sofa, sofa that they just thought was the, the bomb, you know. And they talked to the salesperson who looked at them and looked at their children and said, I need to warn you that if you get something like a jelly stain on this, it's not coming out. So I wonder if you'd want to get something else. Well, uh, Ortberg's wife was totally offended. She thought, we know how to discipline our children. Our word is good enough. And if we tell them not to, to get on the sofa, they're not going to get on the sofa. So they went ahead and bought the mob sofa with the money they sold their uh, Volkswagen van with, and they took it home, and they loved it. And, and I'll let him tell the story from here on out. They got the, the, the sofa home, and he says, from that moment on, we all clearly knew the number one rule in the house. Don't sit on the mob sofa. Don't touch the mob sofa. Don't play around the mob sofa. Don't eat on breathe on, look at, or think about the not mob sofa. Remember the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden? On every other chair in the house you may freely sit, but upon the sofa, the mob sofa, you may not sit, for in the day that you sit thereupon, you shall surely die. <laughs> then came the fall. One day there appeared on the mob sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. So my wife, who had chosen the mauve sofa and adored it, lined up our three children in front of it, Laura, age four, 
Mallory, two and a half, and Johnny, six months. <laughs> Do you see that, children, she said? That's a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store says it's not coming out, not forever. Do you know how long forever is, children? That's how long we're going to stand here until one of you tells us who put the stain on the mauve sofa. Mallory was the first to break. With trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, she said, Laura did it. Laura passionately denied it. Then there was silence for the longest time. No one said a word. I knew the children wouldn't, for they had never seen their mother so upset. I knew they wouldn't because they knew that if they did, they would spend eternity in the timeout chair. And I knew they wouldn't because I was the one who put the red jelly stain on the mob sofa. And I knew I wasn't saying anything. <laughs> he said, I figured I'd find a safe place to confess, such as in a book that I'm going to write maybe. My favorite passage in the Bibles is in the beginning of Mark's gospel, in Mark 1, 1 through 5 or 6, something like that, where John the Baptist breaks onto the scene. And, and Mark writes that he preached baptism for uh, the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he goes on to say that all Jerusalem and the entire Judean countryside came to hear him. Job, John the Baptist was the guy that went out into the wilderness. John the Baptist was the guy that was at the Jordan River, filthy river that Elisha is about to tell Naaman to go wash in. John was there baptizing people, not in the city, not on the countryside, but in this inconvenient area that people had to leave the comforts of their homes and their lives and go to. And all he did was preach that your sins can be forgiven, and everybody went. Everybody in, in the Judean countryside and all Jerusalem went to hear him. You see, I believe people want to be clean. We had a sofa. We called, it our, we called it our laundry couch at our house in Miami, back when we had all the kids in the house. And what Catherine would do is we had, we had a garage with our uh, washer and dryer in it, and she'd wash everything and dry it and fold it and put it on what was called the laundry couch. And we had no problem with the laundry couch unless we heard someone was coming over. And when we heard someone was coming over, we had to hurry up and get all our stuff and stick them in the drawers and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and I told our church in, in Maryland about that one day, and uh, they, you know, kind of like if you're going to move and you have to sell your house so you stick all the stuff in the microwave or something and, and in the car and make it look like you're just really a minimalist and, and, and have, have your act together. So we told our, our church about this. I told them how the first time I told the story, Catherine was a little offended with me. It was one of our family secrets. Well, in the weeks to come, people started posting pictures of their laundry couches, you know, and how they have it. They, they love that their pastor knew that they had it. All it takes is one. People want to be clean, but they don't know how. They're afraid. They're hiding. They think that whatever it is they've done or said, whatever season of life it might have been, maybe in college, maybe in high school, whatever they've gone through, whatever's been imposed on them, whatever they've experienced, the pain that they carry, that they're the only one. That no one could be nearly as bad as they are. Some of that's pride, some of that's ego, but a lot of that is the reality of the power of shame and guilt, and they want someone to break through. I remember uh, last year there was this beautiful little commercial, it's still on every now and then by Papers and Packages. I don't know if you've seen it, 
uh, I don't even know what Papers and Packages is, but they advertise their products by showing this little boy who, um, whose dad is overseas uh, with the military. And he misses his dad. You know, he learns how to ride a bike. He, he, he learns how to swim and stuff like that. So with his crayons, he writes little notes to his dad and he turns them into paper airplanes because there's this big wood fence in his backyard and he throws them over the fence because he thinks that fence is like the edge of the world. And he thinks that his dad gets that. But unbeknownst to him, the old man next door is collecting all these paper airplanes and he takes them and he puts them in a box and he sends them overseas and his dad responds by talking about the things he had done. Only the old man lets his, boy, his, his, his neighbor know by turning his dad's notes into paper airplanes and flying them over the, other, uh, over the fence and the boy realizes that his dad has heard what he's been saying to them. Listen, people want to know if God can break through. They want him to make the first call, and the gospel teaches us that he does. This morning, we consider someone, an unnamed, unknown, unidentified young woman. She's one of my favorite people in the Bible. I can't wait to meet her, who was launched into the life of the world. That's the, the imagery that Leslie uh, Newbegin, who was a 20th century English missionary to India, puts it. He says, the church is a movement launched into the life of the world to bear in its own life God's gift of peace for the life of the world. That's your, that's your vision here. That's your vision that God will tear down walls, right? That God will reconcile people. We, we said it in our reading. We heard it in the, in the assurance of pardon, that, that we have a reconciling God, that he brings us together, that he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. So we bring God's gift of peace for life into the world. And this woman, was this young woman, this girl, was launched into the life of the world, not by her own choosing, but because she was a slave. Yet she bore God's gift of peace. Uh, so you have two confluent storylines going here. One is the world's pain and our calling as God's people, as the church. Uh, we're not allowed to separate them. We're not allowed to separate between the calling of the church into the world and the brokenness of the world. We're not allowed to say it's us and them. We're not allowed to act as though we're better or we're stronger or we're more faithful or we're more loving or anything like that. And our mission and our mission field go hand in hand. You know, I got to admit something. Sometimes I get so discouraged with expressions of the church worldwide and nationally because sometimes they are so ugly. And I think, who would ever want to enter in the doors of a church that has such ugly expressions of the gospel, making people feel guilty and reminding them that they're horrible or whatever it might be, as though we've figured out how to be perfect. And it makes me very sad. There was a movie that came out like almost 20 years ago called uh, Chocolat. And it starred Johnny Depp. I don't know anybody else that was in it. He wasn't even the main character. Uh, the main character was this woman and her daughter who came into this uh, French town. They were kind of wanderers. They wandered into this French town, and she set up a chocolate shop. She was a chocolatier. And uh, her chocolate had these magical properties 
The, the, the town was kind of a dark town. There wasn't a lot of joy in it. There was a church that, that met, and the, and the priest there gave, you know, perfunctory messages. The mayor, who was a really self-consumed uh, person and, and oppressive and unjust, went to that church. The priest preached the, prayer, the, the sermons that the, the mayor first approved of. And, uh, and this woman comes, and, 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 and so there was no good news in that town. There were couples that were struggling. There was, there, was, there, was, uh, there was animosity between landlords and their people. But her, her chocolate has these magic property, properties. And as people start eating the chocolate, their lives change. Couples not only start healing, but they get frisky with each other, and and disputes get disputes get healed, and 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 the and the uh, the landlords start being more fair to their the people that are renting their homes, and it becomes this really beautiful community. Except in the church, in the church you have this priest who has to preach what the mayor wants, and the mayor wants him to remind people that they are under the mayor. And all of a sudden, outside of the church, one Sunday, this huge huge festival begins. I think of when Moses goes to Pharaoh. He goes to Pharaoh uh, constantly saying, let my people go that they may worship me in the desert. But one time in, in, in Exodus 5.1, we read that he goes to the Pharaoh and says, let my people go that they may hold a festival for me in the desert. And a festival breaks out in the streets of this place and, and the priest had come under conviction because he knew that he wasn't preaching the gospel. He knew that he was doing what the mayor wanted him to do. And so all these poor people have to come into the church while this great party is going on outside and the priest breaks rank and preaches the gospel and then he leaves and he goes to the festival and the mayor ends up going as well. See, I, I think it's the other way around. We're the ones with the good news. We didn't earn it. We didn't buy it. We weren't good enough for it. But God has told us that we can be forgiven, and we believed it. We're the ones with the news that the world is looking for. We're the ones that have experienced the beauty and the joy of being reconciled with God and with one another and with the planet as God intended when he created the heavens and the earth. That's the, the peace, the shalom, the, the vision of the Old Testament prophets that, that knew that the world was no longer what it was supposed to be from the moment of sin in the garden when sin wrecked all that was supposed to be. And they longed for this shalom. They longed for this peace to return and to be restored to the people of God. And in Jesus, we have that. And we believe that God is going to make things right, that he is making everything new, that we are the living rehearsals of what will one day happen when heaven and earth in one and God's kingdom has come in a way that all the world knows, a healed world where there is no more injustice, where there is no more sickness and death and sorrow. So I want to just look at the characters and the story and then a couple of takeaways with you. And the first character is, of course, Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army. Syria was a nation uh, or, yeah, it's a nation in the massive Assyrian empire, and uh, uh, he, he, he had prestige, he had privilege, he had power, he had influence. He was a great man uh, with his master, the passage says. He was in high favor. He was a man of valor. He was mighty. He was affluent. He had an estate. He had servants. He had all, everything that someone probably would want in this life or in that life back then. And then we read, but he was a leper. 
And leprosy was terminal. It was a death sentence. And interestingly, the scriptures teach us that except in one case, whenever someone was healed of their leprosy, and of course Jesus was generally the one who did it, it was referred to not as healing, but as cleansing. See, the world wants to be clean. And it was offered as kind of a living illustration of the deep damage, the destructive damage of sin, and the desperate nature of our yearning to be made clean. He was a leper. And none of his influence, none of his achievements, none of his power, none of his past, none of his, uh, 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 his stuff, none of his uh, accomplishments had the properties to give him the only thing he needed, and that was healing from his leprosy. Now, obviously, I don't know you all. I don't, I don't know who you are other than a few little snippets that you've shared from your lives, but I know enough to know from my own past and my own story that guilt and shame have a way of making us feel indelibly stained. They have a way of making us feel like we're damaged goods. Like as long as we breathe and are on this planet, we will never get past what we've done and what we've been. We want to be made clean, but we hold our own warped view of what it means to be clean. We think that being clean means being able to go back and undo what we've done. We think that being clean means being able to, to, to retrace our steps and to have what we did removed so that no one knows about it, but that's not what being clean is all about. And in this is the church's mission. In this is our calling to announce good news. And that's why I don't like those ugly manifestations and expressions of the church, because it leaves the impression that the church is clean by its own doing, and we know that's not true. Now, the other character in this is our unnamed friend. She was taken captive during a raid. She was an Israelite. She is described as a little girl. And the language means that she was small and considered insignificant, important. Matthew 18 uses this word when the disciples asked Jesus a question about who is going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, they're always concerned about that. Who's going to sit next to you? Who's going to be great? Who's going to be the most awesome disciple that you just can't live without and all that stuff in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, unless you change and become like little children, same word, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So for all, you know, purposes, this, this girl probably assumed that she would never be heard from again. She was taken captive. She was young. She was made the, 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 the servant of uh, Naaman's wife. Her life was no longer her own. But one day, uh, this little girl, and, and I'm quoting the passage, this little girl, in response to Naaman's wife coming to her, tells her mistress because Naaman's wife is despairing. She's like, you know, he's the breadwinner. He's the guy. That's where I get to go all of the, all the, Assyri the, all of the Syrian parties. I get to meet all the royalty, and my, son is my, my husband's dying. And she goes to this unnamed girl that we don't know and won't know until we're in the new heavens and the new earth. And she pours her heart out to her, who responds by saying that she knows a prophet in Israel who can heal her husband. 
Jesus said that those who will be great will become servants. A servant has access like nobody else. They, they, they have no power. They have no authority. They're not a threat. And as a result, sometimes they are given access to everything where others might not get. And this completely disarms her mistress who feels free to bear her heart. It's really an amazing story. The mistress tells her husband what the little girl told him, who in turn tells the king who sends Naaman to Israel with lots of treasure to the king of Israel. The king of Israel freaks out because he assumes that because he can't heal anyone, he assumes that this, the purpose of the visit is to pick a fight. He thinks that the reason that they're saying all this is that if he can't heal this guy, that they're going to come and do war with him, and they would have no chance against the people of Syria, all because an insignificant, unnamed, nearly invisible little girl told Naaman's wife that she knew a man who could heal her husband. Isn't that incredible? Have you ever heard a message or read a passage or were offered a kindness and you couldn't receive it, you couldn't believe it because there was too much guilt and too much shame and too much paranoia in you? You were afraid to embrace it, afraid to believe it because you didn't know that it was a genuine offer. I think that's what was going on there. Anyways, we continue on. Verses 8 through 12, Elisha catches wind that the king is freaking out, that he's panicked, and he offers Naaman to come to him, which he does, and when Naaman comes, Elisha has one of his servants. It's really interesting. Servants do almost everything in this story. Has one of his servants go to him and tell him that the prophet wants him to wash seven times in the Jordan River, and that when he has done so, he will be clean, and, and, and he, will, he, will, uh, he will be healed of his leprosy. But cleansing doesn't come to mind to Naaman. All that Naaman can hear is that he has to go to this filthy river and wash, and, he, and, he, and he's infuriated. He's so angry because there are beautiful rivers in Syria, and all Israel has is this filthy, muddy steam, and he's insulted that a servant would come and tell him this. He's insulted that he wouldn't be treated with the level of affluence and, and, and influence that he had earned in Syria with all his victories, and he steams off, but his servant comes to him. His servant comes to him and basically, basically gets in his face and essentially but tenderly says, what are you, an idiot? The guy is saying you'll be made clean. That's healed. That means your leprosy will be gone. Get in the freaking st stream. And he does. Now I want to read verse 14 to you again. You've been hearing me repeat something and it was on purpose. Verse 14. So he went down, Naaman, and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of what? A little child. Isn't that amazing? And he was clean. How about that? Naaman is made like a little boy, just like his wife's servant little girl. Kicking and screaming, he was made clean, and he was changed. In the next verse, he says, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. What really did that little girl do when you think about it? By most measures, actually very little. But also, she did very much, didn't she? She offered the only thing she could. That's all that was needed. 
which was the only thing that Naaman needed, which was all that God expected, herself. That's what she gave. She didn't fix him. She didn't correct him. She didn't scold him. She didn't moralize him. She didn't spiritualize his condition, and she didn't guilt him. She simply offered one kind gesture, not even two, because that was all she had, and it was enough, which means that rooted deeply in her heart was the belief that God is enough. What is the church called to be to the world? Two things, and then I'll close. The first one is this a community that enlarges the beauty of God's kingdom. Hey, when you all worship, it's beautiful. You enlarge the, king, the beauty of God's kingdom. I, I read a, an article the other day of a young woman named Kelly Hall Tompkins. She's a concert violinist in New York City, and she's really good at what she does. And every week she goes to Holy Trinity Lutheran Church and plays her violin for the homeless. Nobody knows about it unless they've gone there, but what's happened is that her other orchestra friends have started joining her, and they've done something beautiful and brought music where otherwise it was just about eating and sleeping and finding shelter. Beauty has, has made its way into this shelter in a wonderful way, and it's extending beyond that one. You see, people are drawn to the shalom we were created for, even when it doesn't take the form of a church service or a sermon. Amazingly, in that simple gesture of kindness, Naaman gained a glimpse of the kingdom far lovelier than Assyria or Israel. God's kingdom, where little girls have as much dignity as mighty warriors, and dirty springs stream and gush with cleansing waters. You see, the kingdom of God of which she belonged, that unnamed girl that we won't know till we're in heaven, and the hope that was in her were far more captivating than her captivity. I mean, how could she do that? John Calvin taught that because we bear God's image, when we suffer, God suffers. Because that which he has placed within us, that image of God that gives him such delight, when it is wounded, it brings sorrow to him. So we are to be wounded with the wounds uh, and the brokenness of the world to the extent that we can't live indifferently. We're not allowed to. It's in our DNA. It's in our blood. It's in Christ's blood that was shed for us. He calls the church to share the wounds of God. This is what enabled the girl to treat Naaman with such dignity. She was the festival in the desert for this guy and his family. So it's a community that's called to manifest the beauty of, of God's kingdom, but secondly, a community that embodies the beauty of its savior. I think it's striking. This all but invisible young woman embodies the sacrificial nature of Jesus, whom she would never meet in her lifetime on earth. I mean, personally, I would have gone in full quid pro quo mode, right? You know, sure, I know someone who can help you. What is that going to buy me in Israel? Do I get to leave here? Can I have like four days off out of the week or whatever it is? How much is your life worthy for you? But she doesn't do this. No, she embraces the moment at the expense of her own freedom for the sake of this person who doesn't love the same God, who doesn't know the same prophet, who doesn't live in the same home, who captured her when he took Israel and stole her to be a slave, possibly and probably for the rest of her life. It's amazing. 
Thomas Chalmers, the Scottish pastor of the 18th and 19th century, wrote this. It's just beautiful. He said, the best way to, he said, the best way to overcome the world is not with moral, morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. I remember reading in Patty Kirk's book, Confessions of an Amateur Believer, it's a really good book, uh, of how uh, she was reawakened in her faith. She grew up in the church, but it wasn't real to her. And then her mom became very ill and, and contorted, waiting to die, and how difficult it was for her to care for her mom. But her sister Sharon, her older sister, who sometimes was like a surrogate mom to her, her sister Sharon cared for her mom and just was so kind. She, she stroked her, she kissed her, she talked softly to her, saying things like, there, that wasn't so bad. We just needed to turn you over so it won't hurt, so you won't hurt. Uh, and, and she said that through her sister's kindness, God became gradually recognizable to her again. Listen, if, if you belong to Jesus, this Jesus that you've worshipped, then he has placed you in this world to make himself gradually reckon, recognizable. Here's what I want to leave with you this morning. At the end of the day, the gospel is always incarnational. Until Jesus comes again, it's always in the flesh. It always manifests itself by God's spirit, the reading of his word, but humans in the flesh, and its most beautiful expression is one that enters into the pain of the world. I think of that boy, Riley Howell, the UNC student who uh, just about a month ago uh, saved several kids from dying by running at the shooter. And that's what his mom said. While kids were running one way, our son turned and ran towards the shooter. They were devastated and proud at the same time because he ran into the pain. Theor theoretical, theoretical Christianity never enters into the pain, never feels the sorrow, never experiences the burden of a world filled with brokenness, sadness, and hardship. Neither does indifferent Christianity. It never won a convert, never impressed a visitor, never soothed the mourner, and never eased the burden. No, it offers disgust and self-righteousness and scorn and indignation. It looks down on the others rather than looking at the beauty and the glory of the gospel that God has filled it with in his goodness through his son. The, the, the one story from, from my book that I'll share um, happened one Labor Day weekend. We had just moved to Miami. I grew up in Miami, born and raised, cane fan, all that stuff. And uh, we, took our, we took our children to go to Crandon Park Beach, which, if you know anything about Miami, is kind of detached from the mainland and connected by a bridge. And we just grew up going there. My friends and I, we played football in the water and, and, and uh, stuff like that. And, uh, just a great beach. Well, we went on this day. It was packed, as you can imagine. It was Memorial Day. Went to the beach, and we're sitting there, and next to us was this group of kids. They're listening to, to, to music, which is fine, but two of them start engaging with one another, a guy and a girl, in a really embarrassing, horrible sexual way. And, I, you know, we're just like, our kids are right there. So I said, Catherine, we need to go. 
And um, let's just go, and, and we get up, and we get our stuff, and, and the, the worst part of me came out, and I looked at this guy and said, couldn't you have waited till you got home to do that? And uh, what I didn't realize was that he was part of what essentially a gang, and they all stood up. They're cussing us out. The girl's cussing at us out. He's cussing us out. And um, I said to Catherine, let you, you, you all just go ahead. And I stood there because I thought I was going to get killed, but I wanted to just be one of us instead of all five of us. And, uh, and uh, the, the lifeguard came over, and he said, listen, what do you want me to do about this? I said, I don't want you to do anything about it. I think we'll get, it'll be even worse. So we went to our car, and, uh, and uh, we're walking to the parking lot, which is like a million miles away from there. And this big guy that sort of held the guy that was coming at me off shows up, and he's got a bottle in his hand, and he's holding it like he's not going to drink anything else out of it, you know? And he comes up to me, and he says, I, I kept him from going after you when you went to the lifeguards. And I said, listen, I didn't. I told him not to do anything, and that's just the way it was. And he's just talking, fighting words. And I finally said, listen, I'm a dad. I was protecting my children. And I kid you not, this is the truth. He said, I'm a father too, and I screwed up with my family. And he said, I said, listen, I'm a pastor. Can I, can I pray for you? I'm a Christian. And he said, yes. And this guy, this big meat, you know, he, no shirt. He just grabs onto me and hugs me, and he sobs as I pray for him. And I realized that I was the worst version of the church on the beach and all God wants me to be at the parking lot. God doesn't want you to give what you don't have to give and he doesn't want you to do your job, his job because you'll do a lousy job just like I did. Listen, friends, if you believe Jesus is enough to use you, then you believe much more than that because you also, without even realizing it, may, may, may not realize it, believe he can restore your marriage. You believe he can heal your wounds. You believe he can reconcile your broken friendships. You believe he can remove your shame. It means that you remember what he did when he forgave you and washed you clean. For those who enter into the pain, God uses them to change the world, but only as they remember their pain and remember his kindness his goodness, his mercy, his gift, his son on their behalf. And what about you who may not know Jesus, who may be feeling that you've gone too far, sinned too much, lived too hard, and that you're damaged goods? I understand that. I understand what that's all about. But you need to know that, believe it or not, the gospel teaches that you have gone too far. You have sinned too much. You have lived too hard, and you're damaged by the fall. But what makes the gospel good news, which is what it means, is that it's never about being perfect and always about being clean by a father who through his son has made you his, and he awaits for you. You say, well, how long does it take? Well, if you listen to Willie pray earlier, he gave you the answer. He said, Lord, we thank you 
because you are good that you've given us this day, a day we have never seen before. God is inviting you to himself now. You don't have to be defined by what you were. You don't have to be defined by what you've said. You don't have to be defined by what you've done and by what you've lost. You do that to yourself. You torment yourself. You give yourself hell all the way to the end of your life. You're the one that does that. The gospel doesn't do that. No, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Now, today, if you will hear his voice and follow him. Listen, the gospel is all about right now. Who are you right now? And what are you willing to give up? With a God who is broken through, not with condemnation, not with judgment, but by his son. And for this reason, Jesus came. He took on sin, and it was our sin. He died our death. Jesus, the holy, beloved Son of God, the one whom angels sing and all creation bows, Jesus, the worthy one, the ruler of the kings of the earth, bore the sorrows of the world, took them to the grave, and arose victorious. So by faith in him, all those who flee to him in faith will be saved. When the sword pierced his, his body, out of his veins flowed the cleansing flood of the deep well of God's forgiving grace, which had become the river of life for those who believe. Today is the day of your salvation. Dear brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the beauty and the majesty of the good news that comes from the beautiful one, from the majestic one, for the one true Savior, our Lord and our King, who was neither indifferent nor uncaring, but who came in love and in the flesh for us. And for this, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website, Christchurchintown.org.